There's a couple things before we get started this morning. Uh, you may have heard that uh, this coming Sunday, next Sunday, the 28th, our East Lexington campus will be having their grand opening. So they have been uh, worshiping together for several months now, building momentum, strengthening their core group, and they're ready to go public next Sunday. So if you happen to live over in that side of town, if you drive past that place on your way to one of our other campuses, if you have friends who might live over there who might be willing to check out a brand new church, we want to just encourage you to go worship there next Sunday, eleven uh, ten, and help them get off to a good, strong start. But uh, East Lexington, we're excited for you and praying for you as you get, get things going next Sunday. Then secondly, last Sunday, I invited you to consider church membership as a step towards getting closer this year. But I never told you how to do that. So just a simple process. In fact, we've made the process even simpler this year. Uh, three steps, basically. First, you can uh, watch an online video that just gives kind of an overview and orientation to life and faith here at Grace. You attend a one-hour class in which we kind of, you get to meet some other folks and some, some church leaders. And that class is actually going to happen on October 8, 19th in both Lexington and Wilmington. And then thirdly, you just have a conversation with a few elders or church leaders to share a little bit of your faith story and get to make some personal connections. So that's pretty much it. If you'd like to learn more about it, you can actually stop at the information desk on your way out. There's someone there. Uh, or you can uh, go online, grace.org, and find out more. Well, in the early 1960s, Birmingham, Alabama was perhaps the most racially divided city in our nation. Virtually every aspect of public life was segregated. Schools, restaurants, hotels, buses, churches. African Americans were discriminated against at just about every level of society. Early in 1963, minority leaders like Martin Luther King Jr. and others uh, rallied folks in the city of Birmingham to, to boycott and to public demonstrations to call attention to this injustice. When that movement began to gain some momentum, the authorities in Birmingham responded with brutal force. Dogs, fire hoses, and hundreds of arrests. The judge issued a decree banning all such demonstrations and boycotts. When they heard that, minority leaders like Dr. King and others said they would disobey that ruling, and they did. And so on Good Friday, 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. and others were roughly arrested and thrown in jail. That very same day, a group of white clergymen in the city issued a public statement published in the newspaper. And in that de declaration, they denounced the demonstrations they called on Dr. King and the black community to cease from their demonstrations, to be patient, and to follow due process. Well, someone smuggled a copy of that newspaper article into Martin Luther King Jr. in jail. And he began that day to write a response, an open letter to the clergymen and to the city of Birmingham. And he began that letter on the only piece of paper he had, which was the very newspaper containing that, that article. He wrote in the margins, bit by bit, and smuggled it out piece by piece to his friends on the outside. Eventually, he got hold of a legal pad, and soon the entire document was released to the public under the title, Letter from Birmingham Jail. And in that letter, King laid out the reasons for their protest and the reasons why they could not wait. Justice delayed is justice denied, he wrote. 
And so he called on the black and white community to come together and call attention to this injustice in our country. He gave marching orders in that letter, nonviolent protest and civil disobedience. And that letter from a Birmingham jail became the foundational text of the civil rights movement, a movement that within a few years would bring an end to legal discrimination and segregation in this country. As remarkable as that is, it was not the first time a revolution was set in motion from a prison cell. A couple thousand years earlier, another preacher in another jail wrote another letter, an open letter to friends in the city of Philippi. And in that letter, he called his friends and followers to come together around a new way of being in the world, a new way of relating to one another and the people around them. A way of being that would, when implemented, overturn the existing order of things and give birth to a new community. That letter from a Roman jail we call the book of Philippians. And it has become a foundational text for the church and its mission for these 2,000 years now. And the passage we come to today in Philippians is the very centerpiece of that remarkable letter. If we can come to understand and embrace and practice the truth we're going to consider today, it can transform our families, our friendships, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our schools, our church, our city, and yes, our world. I'm not going to ask us to do anything in response to the message today. I'm simply asking today if we're ready. Are we ready to follow Christ in this particular direction? Don't answer too quickly because it's not an easy question to answer. So let's go to that letter, Philippians chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 11 uh, this morning. This is week three of our Come Together series. Two weeks ago, we talked about uh, becoming a gospel-centered community. Last week, we talked about the power of vulnerability. And the principle we're going to talk about today is just as beautiful and profound. I'm not going to tell you what it is yet. You're going to have to pay attention and figure it out, but you will. The passage begins uh, with a problem in Philippi. Chapter 2, verse 1. If you have any encouragement from being united in Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Now, Paul doesn't say it directly, but if we read between the lines here of this letter, we discern that there's a trouble brewing in Philippi. In spite of their good start, in spite of the close relationships they enjoy with each other and with Paul, there's problem, problems emerging. It turns out that there are factions, rivalries, strife, and disunity in this fledgling church. A little later in the letter, Paul is going to actually call out by name two church leaders, Euodia and Syntyche. And he's going to call on them to settle their differences and tell the church to rally around and help them settle their differences. And so he never comes out and says it directly, but scholars agree that these factions, this strife, was the primary reason Paul wrote this letter. So we know this church in Philippi is facing threats from the outside, persecution, the same persecution that landed Paul in jail. 
But it turns out the greatest threat to the church in Philippi was from within. It was disunity. It was contentiousness, strife, and self-centeredness. And so he begins this section of his letter. And don't miss the passion in his words. You can almost hear him preaching them as he's pacing his cell back and forth. If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from God's love, if there is any fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a a subtle Trinitarian reference here. Encouragement in Christ, comfort in God's love, fellowship of the Spirit. If, there's any, if you have any tenderness and compassion towards one another, make my joy complete, he says. He's pleading with them, urging them, now on the basis of all they've experienced together, to, to find a way to be one, to come together with love and unity. Another way to say it, to capture the passion in his voice, would be to say, for Christ's sake, For God's sake, for the Spirit's sake, for your sakes, for my sake. Be like-minded, one in spirit and purpose. Now, I have to believe Paul would be just as passionate if he were writing this letter directly to us today at Grace Chapel. Now, I don't sense that there's trouble brewing anywhere on this kind of a level. I don't think there are leaders that, I don't know of any leaders that Paul might call out for public rebuke because of their inability to get along with each other. I mean, even our baseball rivalry has fizzled. The Yankees are coming to town and no one cares. So I'm not sensing that we have any particular issues with unity, but we do face threats to our oneness, challenges that are unique to us. I mean, for one thing, we're a large church, and so it's easy to be anonymous at Grace Chapel, especially in Lexington. You can just blend into the woodwork. In a large church, it's easy to avoid people you don't get along with. Just sit in another another section, go to a different service, go to a different campus, and that leaves all these issues unresolved. We're not just a large church, we're a multi-campus church. And so that creates all kinds of possibilities for us to be isolated from one another, to get independent of each other, even to get competitive with each other. Last year, when we opened up the Watertown and East Lexington campus, we used to tease Pastor Tom by saying that Wilmington wasn't an only child anymore. (laughs) There were siblings who wanted a piece of the pie as well. It's not easy to share resources and the spotlight. It's not easy to send off your best volunteers, your best leaders, your best friends to go start another campus. So our size, our multi-campus nature works against us. And, and And then we're a very diverse congregation. We're just now analyzing some of the data that we, that we obtained last year when we did a survey of the congregation. And one of the things we discovered is that uh, Grace Chapel is just about one-third Folks who come from an ethnic background other than European-American. And when you look at non-members of the church, probably most, more of the more recent attenders, it's up to 40% people of color here at Grace Chapel. Now that's wonderful. We've been praying for that. We've been leaning into that for a long, long time. But diversity also presents challenges to oneness and to relationship. Because with ethnic differences come stylistic differences 
cultural differences, language barriers. There are all kinds of stereotypes and fears and prejudices and hurts to be uncovered and processed and overcome if we're to get to real oneness and relationship with each other. We're also a diverse church in terms of age and, and, and political affiliation and um, theological perspectives. I can, I can promise you, if I make any political reference at all from this pulpit, I will inevitably hear that week from people on both sides of whatever issue or personality that happens to be, I bring up. Now, we love, I love that, uh, usually, <laughs> for the most part. I mean, it's what many of us love about this church is the diversity, is the breadth of perspective. It makes us all better and richer. But that diversity can be challenging as well. How, how, how do you grow and worship and serve and fellowship alongside someone who, who disagrees with you on some, something that's very important to you or to our, our faith or to our world? And then if you add the fact that we not only want to be one as a congregation, as a church, we want to be one with the other churches of this great city. Well, now we have geographic barriers and logistical challenges, historical and all kinds of denominational barriers to overcome. All this to say... If we're serious about coming together as a church, as a city, then we need to hear what Paul has to say to the Philippians every much as which they needed to hear it. So what's his answer? What do we have to do to overcome this threat of disunity? Well, verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, so that's all we have to do. Put others first. Stop being selfish. That's it. Piece of cake. It's not that easy, is it? I mean, selfish ambition and vain conceit, that's what made America great, right? <laughs> I'm thinking of some of the shows I came across channel surfing this past week. America's Got Talent. America Ninja Warriors, USA versus the world. Miss America or Miss USA, one of them was on this past week. They're all competitions. Who's best? Who's strongest? Who's prettiest? Who wins? I mean, that's the American way, right? Look out for number one. Have it your way. Do it my way. King of the hill, top of the heap, A number one. He who dies with the most toys wins. It's all about getting a piece of the pie, and the bigger the piece, the better. What's true of Americans is, is true of human beings in general, fallen human beings. We're not good at letting others go first. When was the last time you heard one of your kids say, go ahead, sis, you can have the front seat again. My boys killed each other on the way to the front seat of the car. Through high school. When was the last time you waved nicely at someone who cut you off in traffic? <laughs> when was the last time your coworkers fought over who gets to clean the break room today? When was the last time you heard a church member say, I don't care what kind of music we sing as long as other people are happy? <laughs> We're not wired this way to put others first, to consider them more important than ourselves. And yet Paul is saying this is absolutely essential to gospel community. 
It's important to understand this little passage doesn't stand alone. It flows out of something Paul said earlier. In fact, it's unfortunate there's a chapter division here at chapter 2. You have to go back to chapter 1, verse 27. Paul says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. The gospel, the good news. If we're going to be a good news community, good news for us, good news for the world, then this kind of, uh, of unity, this, this, this kind of putting others first is, is absolutely essential. We need to find some new, radically different way of relating to each other. It's very different from the way our world operates. One of the classic books on the subject of Christian community was written many years ago by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was a German pastor who was thrown into prison for resisting Hitler and the Third Reich. Before he was in prison, during the days of the Nazi oppression, he was teaching in an underground seminary. And some of his lectures were put into books, and one of those books is a little one called Life Together. And at one point in that book, he outlines seven principles for Christian community. Now, we don't have time to unpack all of them this morning, but you'll get the sense of it. Refuse to speak uncharitably about a brother or sister. Remember that we are each sinners saved by grace. Listen long and patiently to one another. Be willing to be interrupted to meet a need. Bear the burdens of other believers. Share God's word with each other. Understand that Christian authority expresses itself through service. And it's that last word that captures all that, that Bonhoeffer is talking about, that Paul is talking about, that we're talking about this morning. It's the word servanthood. Now, it's a word we're familiar with in the church. We toss it around a lot. Servanthood is a quality that we admire and that we aspire to. But honestly, it's one that often and easily eludes us. The message translates Paul's words this way. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with your own advantage. Forget yourself long enough to lend a helping hand. Put yourself aside. Forget yourself. Let others have the advantage. It sounds wonderful, doesn't it? I mean, imagine what it would be like to live in that kind of a household, to be part of that kind of a team, that kind of an office, that kind of a church. I mean, who doesn't want this kind of community? But it's so hard for us. So how do we do it? How do we become these kinds of people? Well, Paul's going to tell us in this next section, and it is without a doubt one of the most profound and beautiful passages in all of Scripture. He sets it up in verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Your attitude, your mindset. Paul's going to propose a new way of thinking about life and relationships radically different than anything the world has seen before. Something as revolutionary and maybe more revolutionary than MLK's nonviolence and civil disobedience. It's nothing less than the very mind of Christ. And he's going to lay out the mind of Christ in poetic fashion, in a form I hope we will never, ever forget. Let me show you. 
It begins by saying, who being in very nature God. Paul begins by declaring that Jesus Christ is himself God, fully divine. From eternity past, he has enjoyed all the glory, power, and splendor that belongs to the king of the universe. That was all his. But he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. And that word grasp is a strong, vivid word. It means to snatch or seize. Think about a toddler grabbing a toy and saying, mine. Think about shoppers at a bargain basement sale, snatching things off the shelf before someone else can get them. Think about the first man and woman grasping for that piece of fruit, a fruit they thought would make them like God. Think of all the grabbing, the snatching, the seizing that we do as human beings. And now think of the Son of God letting go of all that was rightfully His, giving it up, releasing His grip, and beginning His descent to earth. But made Himself nothing. Literally, He emptied Himself. What do you have left when you empty something? Nothing. He emptied himself. Not of his deity, he was still God. What he emptied himself of was all the rights and privileges that were his as God. He emptied them. Instead of packing his bags before he came to earth so he'd have all his stuff with them, he emptied his bags before he came. Like a refugee walking into a first, a Red Cross camp, he arrived with nothing. And taking the very nature of a servant... There's the word, servant, slave, actually. How many rights does a slave have? None. That's a pretty big downward step from king of the universe to slave. But he's not done yet. And being made in human likeness and found in appearance as a man. He not only looked like a human being, like one of us, he was a human being. He became one of us. He entered the world the same way every human being enters the world as an infant. Helpless, vulnerable, powerless. The, the king of the universe, bound by time and space, confined to a body, needing food and water and rest. He humbled himself. Literally, he lowered himself. How much lower can he go than he has already? From the, the heights of heaven to the dust of planet earth. From glory to poverty. From being worshipped to being laughed at, scorned, mistreated, rejected, betrayed. How much lower can a person go? Quite a bit, turns out. He became obedient to death. Obedient. A king is supposed to give orders, not take them. And death, who chooses to die? Who willingly gives up his life for someone else? Surely, surely this is the lowest place. Death is the worst place a person can be. But not yet. Even death on a cross. In all of human history, there has never been devised a more painful, shameful, humiliating way to die than crucifixion. The Romans had three forms of capital punishment. Beheading, burning, and crucifixion. 
And crucifixion was reserved for the lowest of the low, for the worst of the worst. And Jesus chose it. Step by step, he descended from the highest place to the lowest place. Descended into our world, descended into the human condition, descended to the very worst things a human being can possibly experience. And he did it for us. He did it on the chance that we would recognize what he had done, that we would receive it for our salvation, and that we would respond by doing for others what he had done for us. You see, this is servanthood. These are our marching orders. This is the charter of the new community, the true community called the church. People talk about the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's not bad. The world would be a much better place if we did that. But you know what? It is not good enough for the kingdom of God. That is not good enough for the new community called the church. In, in, in the true community, the ethic is do unto others as Jesus has done unto you. And what has Jesus done for you? He has lowered himself. He has emptied himself. He has made himself a servant to do whatever you was ever was necessary to rescue you and bring you to a better place. Now, in the weeks to come, we're going to talk about how we can follow his example. What are some practical ways? What does it mean from day to, in day-to-day -day life to serve and love one another and the world around us? We'll talk about those things. But some of those are going to cost us something. They're going to cost us time. They're going to cost energy. They may cost safety, comfort, privacy, freedom, convenience, all those things. They're going to cost us. Are we ready to do that? That's the only question I have this morning. Are we ready to do that, to lower ourselves, empty ourselves, and give ourselves away in service to each other and the world? Are we ready? Don't answer too quickly because it's a profound question with significant implications for our lives and our church. Servanthood is not our first instinct, but we won't get there by trying harder. Not by gritting our teeth and trying to be nice. Now, we can be nice once in a while. We can pull that off. We can make some token gestures towards one another and the world of, of community. But we can't pull it off consistently. We can't pull it off sincerely in our own strength. Because selfish ambition and vain conceit, it's always lurking, always spoiling, always undermining. But only get there in Christ. I like the King James Version of verse 5. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. The mind of Christ. Now, how do you get the mind of Christ? Well, you don't get it by trying harder. You don't even get it by asking, what would Jesus do? Now, that's a very fair question to ask, but if, if you don't have the mind of Christ, you have no idea what Jesus would do, let alone the power to actually do it. Having the mind of Christ isn't about trying harder. It's about being with Christ. It's about worshiping Christ, reading about Christ, studying Christ, hanging around with other people who are following Christ, talking to Christ as you make your way through the day, welcoming Christ into the good and bad moments of life. 
Children don't become like their parents by trying to be like their parents. Heck, most of us are trying not to be like our parents. But we turn out that way because we spend so much time with them. And so it is. The way to be like Christ is to be with Christ as many ways and in as many times as you possibly can. And when we do that, then we begin to have the mind of Christ. And when we have the mind of Christ, then we're getting ready to lower ourselves, to empty ourselves, to give ourselves away to others. But it's still a big ask. It's scary. I mean, it's a frightening world out there. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world out there. We have needs, right? We have families to take care of. We have finances to cover. We only have so much energy. I mean, can we really live this way? What, what happens to a person who empties themselves of all their rights and privileges? Where does that lead? Well, let's find out. When we left the Son of God, He had descended to the very lowest place. He was at the bottom of the staircase. And He went there for us to find us in our darkness and lostness. And look what happens next. Therefore, God exalted Him to the highest place. The Heavenly Father didn't abandon Jesus in that low place. Now, it felt like it. It looked like it even to Jesus. But the Father did not abandon him in that low place. That's where the Father began his most remarkable work and gave him the name that is above every name. You see what's happening? Jesus is beginning to rise. Having lowered himself, the Father is now lifting him. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. That name, Jesus, Yeshua, it was one of the most common names of the day. John, Mary, it was a common name. And yet because of what Jesus did, because of what God did through Jesus, that name, Jesus, has become the most powerful, revered, intriguing, captivating name on the, on the face of this planet. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. Not just human beings, but heavenly beings. Not just beings who still walk the earth, but beings who have lived and died and been laid to rest. Everyone comes under his rule. And every tongue confess. Those who have chosen to confess by faith. And those who confess because they no longer have a choice. That Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord was how Jews of the day referred to God. They didn't dare call him by his, his Hebrew name, Yahweh, so they called him Adonai, Lord. And that name Paul applies to Jesus. Jesus Christ is Lord. Caesar's not Lord. Jesus is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Do you see where we are again? We're back to the highest heights of heaven, the very throne room of heaven. Back to the glory and splendor and power that belonged to Jesus from the very beginning. If God can bring Jesus from that lowest possible place to the very highest possible place, I think he can take care of us. When we empty ourselves, when we lower ourselves to meet anybody at their point of need, however low it might be, if we're willing to go there, Jesus is willing to meet us there and lift us up again and lift us up to a life that is more beautiful and profound and satisfying than we ever dreamed possible. In God's kingdom, you descend into greatness. The way up is down. He who would be first must be last, and she who would be great must be servant of all. Are we ready to do that.
That's the question before us today. Don't answer lightly or quickly because it's a profound ask. When we are ready to serve others the way Christ has served us, then God can do something remarkable among us. When we are ready to serve others the way Christ has served us, then God can do something great in our midst. Are we ready for that? Now, before you answer, let me share one more word picture with you. It's a picture that's painted by C.S. Lewis as he's contemplating the truths we've been talking about this morning. It may have been inspired by this very passage. Lewis asks us to imagine a pearl diver, first reducing himself to nakedness, then glancing in midair, then gone with a splash, vanishing, rushing down through green and warm water into dark and cold water, down through increasing pressure to a death-like zone of ooze and mud and old decay, and then up again toward color and light, his lungs bursting till he breaks through the surface holding in his hand the precious dripping thing he went to recover. And he and it are now brilliant in the light of day. That precious thing, that pearl purchased at grace price, that's you. You are that precious thing. You are that pearl purchased at the very cost of Jesus' life and death. And he did that. He found you and, and rescued you and raised you so that you might do for others what he has done for you. Are you ready to do that? Are we ready to do that? May it be so, Lord. May it be so. Let's take a quiet moment and just think on these things. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, it's possible that you're here this morning and you're not certain you have ever been found by Christ, that he hasn't yet met you in some deep or dark or difficult place and, and brought you the kind of forgiveness and freedom we've been talking about this morning. If you have never received this kind of love, you certainly can't offer it to anyone else. So I'd just like to allow a moment if today, perhaps for the first time here in Lexington or at any campus, if if you are opening your heart to Christ's love, if you're willing to receive his forgiveness and his freedom and a fresh start in life, would you just slip a hand up and look towards me for a minute or towards the pastor in your campus? Just raise a head. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Just raise a hand. Look towards me for a moment. I can be praying for you. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you, Lord. I'm going to invite you to pray after me, maybe for the first time, maybe for the hundredth time. Dear Lord, you can pray quietly. Dear Lord, thank you for loving me. Thank you for coming to earth to find me. Thank you for going to the cross that I might be forgiven. 
I accept that forgiveness today. I ask you to begin today making me a new person, lifting me to the person that you would have me to be, making me a member of your church and sending me out into the world to follow your example. Thank you, Lord, for making me your child, your servant, and your friend. In Jesus' name, amen.